Here's the music. We always need music. Yes. And people have been saying that they like the music. See, and you always say you want to find something else, but why, why fix something that is not broke? Maybe because I feel like I needed to have worked harder to find that music. Yeah, you I know what's going to happen is. is that you're going to start looking, and then you're going to come back to the same thing and <laughs> no, say, "I was like, oh, this sounds you know okay. What? This is what I, I think. This is the best of what I was <laughs> looking for." Hey, we're on. Session seven. And so the wow. end is in sight. That is pretty remarkable. Yes. We are talking about sanctification by faith. And you did a lot of sharing and talking. So I do have some questions for you. You talked about legalism. Uh, the word that you used was the opposite of that hedonism. What was the other word? Antinomianism. Antinomianism. Yes. Anti no namas law. Right. right. Uh, or anti-against. And uh, another word that is used is licentiousness, right? Yes. Or that same idea. I think it would be helpful to sort of once again summarize that a little bit. In what ways does the gospel speak into both? Rather than rehashing how it was presented, mm -hmm. because it was actually a slightly different way of presenting it than I normally do, mm -hmm. Uh, it was because of what I was rereading, relearning mm -hmm. from Sinclair Ferguson mm -hmm. and Tim Keller. Oh, yes, that's right. You were saying that. From the whole Christ. From the whole Christ, by which is actually a commentary on this very yes. old book. What is that book? Marrow of Modern yes. Divinity. Yes. By uh, Edward Fisher. Yes. But to answer the question, the way I normally say it is all the sin in the world can be categorized if they're able to be categorized into two problems, two categories of sin. One is legalism, that is taking God's law or making up rules about God's law or making up rules to obey in order to get God to bless you or for God to accept you mm -hmm. or to be considered righteous, quote and unquote. The other way is forget about God's law, neglect God's law, reject God's law as a way to be accepted by God. Mm -hmm. But it really is to feel better about yourself and feel the freedom and the gratification. The way you can talk about those two things or the way I express it over time is one is more about self-righteousness and the other one self-gratification. But if you look at those two very closely, there is self-righteousness in both, and there is self-gratification in both, mm -hmm. as well as one leads to the other. And all this is from Edward Fisher. Tim Keller did not come up with that. Mm -hmm. He's drawing from all these folks who have understood it, that sin can be categorized into these two ways. Mm -hmm. The gospel addresses both. Jesus does the work that we can never do no matter how legalistic mm -hmm. we are and perfectionistic we are and moralistic we are, Jesus does the work completely and perfectly and then offers that to me. As well as once we are united to Jesus and because of him in our lives, we see God's greater beauty and perfection and holiness. 
that we get that and we're satisfied by it, we're gratified by it, then that becomes the reason and the power to obey God and to be one to be with God, to obey God, experience who He is in our lives, including what we do with our lives, obedience and so on. I think that's how, in a nutshell, it works. Yes. What do you think? Yeah. What yeah. do you think? No, yeah. you know, I was uh, listening. I think it was, I can't remember. I think it was to the White Horse Inn. And uh, it's a podcast with uh, Michael Horton and uh, Justin Holcomb and a couple of other guys. And they were talking about how licentiousness is a form of legalism. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. What I try to convey from Sinclair mm-hmm. Ferguson is everybody begins as a legalist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But go on. Right. It sort of has that same idea. And it's that legalism is basically this point of view, as you shared, that you basically come up, whether it's your view of God's standards and law or your own standards and law, and you apply that both to yourself, you evaluate, judge yourself on that basis, and then you mete out judgment or blessing, or you apply that to other people and you mete out judgment or blessing. And Licentiousness is essentially another way of saying, well, I'm going to live by my own standards and that standard is going to be whatever I deem it to be and no one can speak into that because I determine what is righteous, what is meritorious and it could be whatever that you know ends up being, which usually ends up being licentious. It's apart from God's law and it ends up being everything, whatever I want it to be. And no one can speak into that. Because if you address someone who's being overly licentious and you say, hey, you know, maybe what you're doing is, have you ever considered that's wrong? And you use the word wrong. That's a word that has a moral component. It has a standard, right or wrong. It has a, there's an assumption that that right or wrong is based on scripture or some sort of absolute standard. And when we don't live up to it, and then we quote judge someone because we say what they're doing is wrong they don't want to hear that because it goes against their standard of what is righteous and so therefore they get angry and so that licentiousness is essentially another form of legalism it's the same it has the same heart so you're right i think what you were saying about what sinclair ferguson was saying is that we all start out as legalists is that because we are living apart from god's law we determine our own law we're living by our own law even when we use God's law. And that's that's something that uh, actually our group talked about this. Um, we talked about how uh, that there are a lot of ways in which we grew up in a church context, in a ministry context where, spiritually speaking, the language was all scriptural. It was from the Bible. But just because you use the language of the Bible doesn't necessarily mean you're being understanding law and gospel rightly. And so it can be oppressive or so taxing and burdensome that you you do feel as though God does not love you, care about you because you're a failure in upholding God's law. And that's in a Christian context. That was very much uh, a part of our conversation. To follow up, I heard that your group talked about the functions of the law or types of law in the Old Testament. Can you elaborate? Yeah, that's a... Uh, um, you know, it's interesting. We did talk about that, and I asked everyone to turn to Leviticus chapter 19. And the reason Leviticus 19 is because I don't know why, just right off the top of my head, I think that that passage or that chapter 
in particular has something to do with um, specifically about sexuality. So like, for example, it does have certain verses in Leviticus 19, which is clearly part of the Torah, uh, the law of Moses. And we would say, yeah, this is definitely the moral law, right? Because you talked about uh, the three functions of the law, the ceremonial, civil, moral. I just brought up Leviticus 19 because it has, for example, in verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord, do not defraud your neighbor. That clearly sounds like the Old Te- uh, the Ten Commandments, right? And we would say that's the moral law. The challenge is that in that same chapter, in verse 19, it says, do not mate different kinds of animals. Mating. Okay. Yes. Okay. You might say, okay, maybe that's the moral law. The next one says, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Then you go, I don't know if that's part of the way. That... Then it says, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. We all broke the law then. Right. I like 100% cotton. <laughs> No blended. Are you sh- you're wearing a blended shirt right now. That's true. Polyester. And <laughs> you just broke the law. That's right. Did you bro- break the moral law or the ceremony? <laughs> now, here's the challenge with this, and I want to hear what you think. It says, this is verse 19, right? Do not meet two different kinds of animals. This is after saying, do not hit your brother, do not curse uh, the deaf or put someone block in front of the blind. Do not lie, do not steal. So those all sound like Ten Commandments moral law. But right in the middle of it says, do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing. In other words, we can't wear dry fit clothing, which you're wearing right now. And then right after that, verse 20 says, if a man sleeps with a woman who is a slave girl promised to another man, but who has not been ransomed or given her freedom, there must be due punishment. So then it goes into this whole idea of, you know, the the concept of when you enter the the land and plant any kind of fruit, uh, regard its fruit as forbidden. Then it says, do not eat any meat with blood in it. Do not practice divination or sorcery. So you might say, wow, if you eat meat with blood in it, how many people eat meat with blood in it? Those crazy people who eat rare steak. Yeah, but what about sushi, though? Sushi sometimes has some blood. Well, sorry, Lisa. What about about blood sausages that I know a lot of people do eat? Whether you're English and you eat it for Breakfast. uh, breakfast or you're Asian and you eat blood sausages, which a lot of, I know, Asians love, right? It says that, and you might say, well, that sounds then like civil law. But then it says right after it, do not practice divination or sorcery. Then you say, oh, that definitely sounds like moral law. And then it says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. I notice you have the sides of your hair cut off. (laughs) Sideburns, no sideburns. Yeah, Yeah, you you have to have really long sideburns. So that's right after do not practice divination. And then right after that is, I, I said to this one, do not cut your bodies for the dead, which we would say, oh yeah, you shouldn't do that. Or put tattoo marks on yourselves. And then I asked, does anyone have tattoos here? And someone raised their hands. And then it says, right after the tattoo, it says, do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. And then after that, observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. So, and this is the challenge that has been throughout and theology and, and scripture is that uh, in understanding this hermeneutics is that when it comes to the law, the way the Bible lays it out, it's not, okay, here's the moral section of the law and boom, you have all these moral codes. And then you have, this only applies to Israel. So it's the civil section, b- biblical Israel. 
And then ceremonial, this applies to the worship of Israel. And so this is a ceremonial. It's very much interspersed within one another. And so the question that we asked was, and this is for you since you had this discussion. I'm glad you're answering this question. It sounds arbitrary when you're saying All right, moral law. Yeah, but that's, that's moral. That's not moral. So what makes a eating blood not moral, but then tattoos not moral, but then the Sabbath moral? And then we even talked about, well, some people have a very different view of what it means to even keep the Sabbath. And some would have a much more moral, a higher moral standard on keeping the Sabbath than others. So then I think that these are the type of the questions that I'm sure people are wondering about. And so I throw it to you, ask to see what you think. Without trying to answer the question, not that I know how to answer the question, I think the reason why we got to the topic of moral law is after we get to Jesus who obeyed the law perfectly and that he imputes that righteousness to us in union with Christ, then what are we supposed to do? How do we live? What are we supposed to obey? What's the guideline? And most theologians will say the moral law still applies as a guide to our Christian lives. So do not lie. It's mostly the Ten Commandments. And D.A. Carson, I mentioned, and will say, well, it's not exact. It's hard to differentiate exactly the civil and the ceremonial yeah. and the moral. So he generalizes it this way. is When the New Testament refers back to the old and says this is something that you have to keep as a believer, that's generally categorized as moral law. Because the New Testament church, it talks about loving neighbor, talks about taking care of the poor, talks about certain ethical and moral dilemmas. And through that, they talk about what a Christian ought to do and obey and if we can tie that back to an Old Testament law, then D.A. Carson will say that's moral law. Mm. I, I think that's a really helpful means by which you can determine what is the moral law that is to be obeyed. The reason why we will call it moral law and the civil and the ceremonial are not included in the New Testament is because of the constant push of the gospel beyond the Jewish or Judaic world. Each and every time, the Jews want to keep the gospel within the Jewish circle and mm -hmm. say, you got to obey all the things that a Jew should obey and then believe the gospel, mm -hmm. along with mm -hmm. believing the gospel. Mm -hmm. And each and every time, the apostles say no. Yeah, that's typified by circumcision, primarily. Right. Right, as the foundational, because it's a covenant sign, right? right? So it's sort of the marker upon which you are a people of God. As a Jew. As a Jew. So in that debate, they take that away as a, a marker of being a Jew, but all two have the moral law yeah. in Christ right. as a guideline for Christian obedience. Mm -hmm. So there's no way, let's make sure we say this, if you're united to Jesus because of your delight in God and you see his commands as being his moral law as being something good for you, yeah, you would obey. You wouldn't be an antinomian. You wouldn't be a person who just goes off on his own. Oh, God loves me, so I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. Or God loves me, he doesn't care about exactly my morals mm -hmm. or ethics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely being the, as you know to what Carson was saying, is that being the, the New Testament is sort of the driver that, interprets the old testament so 
it determines what is the law that is the moral law of God that we are, we cannot perfectly keep. We won't, but in Christ we keep it. But it's one that we pursue in obedience because we desire it. But I also agree with what you're saying with what Carson was saying is that the lines upon which we determine what is moral and civil and ceremonial, they're not as clear as you would imagine. For Like, for example, the Sabbath, right? Clearly, in the New Testament, Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Man was, um, the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And therefore, how you understand that is significant. I remember uh, listening to Donald Whitney. He was talking about this topic. And I know you're going to talk about spiritual disciplines next week. Um, and he wrote a book on spiritual disciplines. And it, he actually was a retreat speaker we had once. And I was talking to him about this topic because he talked a lot about the Sabbath. And he talked about how he saw the Sabbath as He's not a strict Sabbatarian, but he sees the value of the Sabbath actually in the life of the believer. And he saw it as that generally, because it is ultimately a day of God's sovereign rest, very Meredith Klein, or Sabbath enthronement. Right, in right? creation. Yes. And that remembering the Sabbath, or Hebrews chapter 4, that when they entered into the land, that the Israelites were to remember this because it reminded them of who is ultimately God who and whom they're going to exalt forever and so they um, that the Sabbath in some way needs to reflect that just like most spiritual earthly uh, things reflect spiritual realities and so the rest that we take on a Sabbath is sort of a reflection of God's ultimate sovereign exalted rest you might say because he didn't rest because he was tired and so he saw because of that, oh, it'd be, it's good to rest on the Sabbath. Like, in other words, to set it aside as a time where you might not necessarily do a ton of work. Or I don't think he's against work. Like, for example, he, gave, he saw exceptions to things such as uh, those who are first responders, you know, or doctor, where you're doing mercy because he, he, he sort of recalled where Jesus says, if your donkey falls into a pit, are you not going to pull it out? You you pull it out. And the reason you pull it out is because it actually shows mercy to that donkey. And so therefore, there are things that we do that even though you do it on the Sabbath, if it shows mercy, then it's a good thing. But if it's, say, you know, like trying to make more money so that you can be wealthier and so you work more on the Sabbath, he really sees it as, no, you should rest. You should worship, take a nap, to make it different than the way that it was. So in that sense, he's not a strict Sabbatarian, but he sees the value of it. You know, there's there's different ways to look at it, per se. I don't know what you think about the Sabbath, but that's just one area where the lines of the what is moral becomes, you know, a little different. If you're a moralist or a legalist, mm -hmm. you would say, well, I'm going to follow the Old Testament mm -hmm. view of Sabbath or practice of Sabbath. But then... What comes to mind, and you mentioned it, which is if Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and I am united to Christ and what he says and how he thinks about the Sabbath is going to impact or guide the way that I uh, live it out. I think what should come to mind is, you know, Jesus healed. So right, on the yes. Sabbath, which yeah. is a encouragement or we can take it as an encouragement to go and visit the sick, mm -hmm. take care of, to visit with people, to encourage them spiritually mm -hmm. or otherwise, mm -hmm. to eat together mm -hmm. with others. That's good as news. As Jesus fed, yeah. 
But in Christ provides a guideline or an impetus, dare I say, a directive of how we directive can... Directive is... Is too much? Too strong a yeah. word? The problem with going a little bit too much is that we do slowly start veering into that line yeah. where we start defining. Right. Right. This is what you must do. Yes. Right. Do not chew gum on the Sabbath. Do, do not, not buy gas on the Sabbath. Do not buy gas. <laughs> gas. Do not go to the store. And we were talking about how our parents' generation definitely had a stronger Sabbatarian view. I'm thinking, you know, maybe we are too flippant about the Sabbath, about the Lord's Day. And that's another thing is that the difference between the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. I mean, we don't want to make this whole talk about the Sabbath. And, I mean, this is literally, we could spend the whole day, whole podcast talking about oh, yes. the Sabbath and yeah. the Lord's Day and what goes on. So I don't want to go too much into that, but it's just this real necessity for us to recognize that there is a significance to this day. It's not like it's nothing. I mean, there is a reason why scripture brings it up time and time again, and it does reflect an eternal glory that will be experienced in an eternal Sabbath, as Hebrews 4 says. But at the same time, we have to be a little bit wary of applying too much principle that it does become legalistic, right? Where, you know, we start doing something like uh, we were talking as a staff and we were saying uh, some people in the, when they got married, they wore gloves at their wedding. <laughs> and then I said, well, why do people wear gloves at the wedding? And they used to long. Yeah. Well, why? Certain cultures. Well, why? It's very formal, very clean. Clean? I don't know. Everyone's <laughs> doing the white glove test of, te you know, taking their finger and making sure there's no dust. I, but you do it because there's, but you actually, what happens is that somewhere along the way, someone came up with that idea, right? It was a good idea, maybe. It, it made sense. It may, maybe they looked, they did it because they really liked the look. And then they told their kids, you have to wear white gloves at your wedding. Why? Because it, it's really important. And then they tell their kids, they, and then pretty soon, generations later, they're still wearing white gloves. But I have well, no clue why they're wearing white gloves. Going back to Sabbath for a second, <laughs> is in Christ, him being the Lord of Sabbath, mm -hmm. as well as so many other things mm -hmm. that Jesus re-infuses mm -hmm. into the Sabbath. And the more that we learn of it, we'll find that the Sabbath is good news, grace, yes. mercy, and that actually living in the way that Jesus wants us to, instead of legalism or antinomianism, will have a lot of blessings. Through right. It. Now, what do you think about tattoos? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I... I think you can have a tattoo as much as you can have two <laughs> two types of materials for a shirt called dry fit shirt, polyester blend. Now, some people might not like dry fit shirts. They don't like the way it looks. They don't like the feel of it. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Just preference. Tattoo. All right. For those of you who have tattoos, I'm sorry to say this. I just think my question always about tattoos has nothing to do with anything spiritual. It's always, you know, it probably looks really cool when you're 20. But when that skin is, you're 80 years old, <laughs> and that skin is, is loose, that tattoo that was once beautiful becomes pretty off. Or if you put something there that you think, this is so important in my life, and then later on you say, uh-oh, I regret having this tattoo. That's a lot of pain to go through to get rid of it or to keep it and to have this really bad memory, or if they make a really bad drawing. So anyway, it's a preference thing. That's what I see it as, though, a preference thing, right? Yeah, just use one font throughout the whole body. <laughs> what if you have 
Zaf Chancery and Comic Sans as a font. You got to stick with Zaf Chancery. <laughs> I think yeah. one day we should have some sort of document that has Zaf Chancery, Comic Sans. What, what are some other? Papyrus. Dingbats. Dingbats. <laughs> I know some of you are thinking, what are these guys talking about? And then some are laughing with us. We didn't. There's so much. I feel like this is going to need a part two and three, actually. You know why? Because there's so much to talk about when it comes to legalism and li licentiousness. It just keeps on going and going. What do you think about, and, and I'm, I'm curious, because it was relatively new thought, the way that Sinclair Ferguson and Keller were saying that we become legalistic or antinomian because we think God is not good and that his law is a burden. And then if we can reverse that, then we'll actually obey. Do they say we say God is not good? As sinners, especially when we go through suffering mm. or we don't get our way, sure. we get into a car accident, God's not good or God hates me today. God's judging me. And when you have that kind of mindset about God and then the law, moral mm. law that he gives, we're like, oh, it's burdensome. Yes. But some people like keep those laws. Other people, they run away from it. Mm. But the idea that our view of God is absolutely critical in how we live mm -hmm. and obey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think that. I don't know necessarily if it's always intentional that I say in my mind, God is not good, therefore I'm going to be legalistic, right? Right. It's, it could be ultimately what is there. Um, I, or maybe goodness is one aspect or just some sort of fallacy about my thinking of who God is. I always go back to the idea that at the core, you know, when we talk about idolatry, it's really the idolatry of saying, I'm the determiner of my own life. What is really another way to think of it is that when Adam took from the knowledge, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and determined at that point, he's going to say for himself, rather than depending on God, to be the standard upon which right and wrong is determined, he determines what is right and wrong, which is essentially he'll be like God, right? Which is what Satan said. So his determination of what is right and wrong is sort of the foundation of legalism because no longer does he look to God and his character, his nature, his uh, grace, his kindness, his goodness. He's going to look to himself as the one who determines that. And then he will either evaluate, judge everything on the basis of what he deems right and wrong, or he'll evaluate and judge other people on the basis of not what God determines is right and wrong, but on what I determine what is right or wrong. So if I say, hey, if you have a tattoo, you're a sinner, then that's the case. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. That's, that is really the determining factor. So then I say, oh, if the Sabbath should be like this and you don't do it, then I judge you on that basis. Because it's not based on who God is. It's based on what I believe, even what I believe in who God is. Now, the way we evaluate whether that person is saying uh, something that is valid is in God's word itself as a whole. So it's not to say I shouldn't just dismiss it. If someone comes up to me and points out an area of correction, maybe it really isn't out of their self-centeredness that they're doing that. Maybe it really is because they love me. And they have a great view of God. So the way that I would evaluate that is by saying, all right, show me in, your wor in God's word where it says that. And if they point it out and that doesn't match up with how I'm living, then I should be open to that type of correction. But if it doesn't 
play out that way. If they say, you know, you should not be wearing dry fit clothing. Now that's very obvious, right? Dry fit clothing. But let's say drinking a beer, smoking a cigarette. You know, things that I think for so much of our Christian life, I grew up thinking if you do those things automatically, that's a sin. Card playing. There are some things that we have this idea that it's a sin. It's not just it's unwise or like there are instances where maybe drinking a beer is not the wisest thing. But inherently drinking a beer is not inherently sinful according to scripture. But yet there are people who literally will not only say that but will actually demand it of you to abide by. And if you don't, they will actually call you a sinner. Well, we are sinners. But that we're sinning as a result of drinking that beer. And that's when you say, hmm, is this really in scripture or is this something that's being applied to me on the basis of their determination based on not of who God is and what God's word says, but on what they believe. And it's not even consistent with God's word. What do you think? See, I'm glad that we're, you're talking about this because this was an area that I wanted to, but there was no time, no, which is wasn't. we in ourselves have this proclivity towards legalism mm -hmm. and then reaction against that antinomianism. Mm -hmm. But how does that impact the people around us? Mm -hmm. Because we apply our legalism onto people mm -hmm. or apply our antinomianism on our kids. Mm -hmm. It comes out in the way that we parent. It yeah. comes out in the way that we interact yes. with people. It comes out even in the way that we think about our culture. Are mm -hmm. we too like conservative or too liberal? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's an area that we didn't Oh, there's touch. so much. Yeah, right? There are so many areas. Like, for example, let's, say, let's just take the beer example. So I could say, I have freedom to drink this, right? And to hold me to a certain standard where I'm not allowed to could be because that's sinful to do so is legalistic. But then I could go the licentious route and say, well, how dare you do that to me to say that? Therefore, I'm going to drink as much as I want. I'm going to get drunk all the time. There's this reaction that goes off of sometimes when legalism takes place, and I've seen this many times where we've been hurt by legalism, and including legalistic churches and ministries and preaching and teaching. And even, you know, in our group, we were talking about past ministries that were, if you don't pray four hours, then you're not really, really praying. Or if you, you don't fast all week, then you're not really godly. And so you become very, it, it's just taxing it's burdensome as we talked about right jesus condemns the pharisees you you pharisees you hypocrites you you place all these burdens on these people but you don't lift one finger to lift their burden right and so that's the legalism that some of us grew up in but then the reaction of that is well i'm just going to leave the church i don't need that because there are, yes there are some ministries churches that do such things but it doesn't the licentious route is i'm just going to leave forget the Lord forget Jesus forget the gospel it's messed up it's not the gospel that's messed up it's the legalism that is a distortion of the gospel a false right. gospel and if they heard the true gospel rather than being also antinomian and saying well there must be no gospel then that's the better route is no gospel but no gospel is really no gospel it's anti-good news they'll be living an anti-good news life and that's that's no better than the legalism that they had it's a legalistic perspective of licentiousness against their standard is what is right and i'm gonna say well i determine what is right or wrong and i'm gonna cut this all out and i'm the god of this of my life right. and so this constant push pull of legalism 
and licentiousness is something that is so much integrated into the life of the believer. Something that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that I think is important is he was saying something along these lines. It's like if your church, if they're not struggling with licentiousness, they're probably not preaching the gospel. I've heard that. Yeah. Like you're so gracious that it almost seems as though there's too much freedom. And you could see why you would say that because of what Sinclair Ferguson said is that we all start out as legalists. So almost like our default mode is legalism. And so when grace is in operation, there is almost this feeling of, can I really drink a beer and not be judged by it? Can I really have a tattoo? Can I really on Sunday go eat out with my friends in a restaurant? Especially for those who have grown up in super legalistic contexts where to do such things automatically equated sin. And so to go down a certain road makes it seem as though it's so licentious, so free that it seems licentious. I think Lloyd-Jones's point is not to say, oh, sin as much as you want, because that's against Romans 6.1, right? So it's we're supposed to f- experience so much freedom in Christ because of the gospel that there is this, this sense of, wow, am I really this free in Christ? And I think that's a good place to be. Now, there's a flip side to that, and there's more and more qualifiers and all these things. But this topic is so substantial, we need a part two. I think it's so much of what we've been discussing in Gospel Well as we're making this shift into uh, the outworking of the gospel. Uh, There's just so much more to cover. So it would really help if you had any questions or thoughts to email us at gospelwell at wspring.org. And both Fuji and I will read those emails and questions and we will answer them. So if you have any, please send us your questions. We're glad to be with you as we journey together in the gospel. We'll talk to you with the next podcast about legalism and licentiousness. And other things. And other things.